Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. Bet365 sponsors the Phil Hay Show and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The domestic season may be over, but we still have the finals of the Champions League and the Europa League to play. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. The Bet365 Bet Builder lets you combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bets. And if you can't watch the games live on telly, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, hello. And the man with the most famous loft conversion in Yorkshire from The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, he's officially got a dungeon in Pontefract. It's Michael Normanton. And no one knows about that apart from you, so just uh, keep it quiet. And the police. If you're not yet signed up with The Athletic, you can put that right and try it out for free. You can enjoy all of Phil's great writing on Leeds, including that recent article on how Bielsa has made the team a must-watch in Argentina. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for a 30-day free trial. That's theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Three weeks to go then until the Premier League kicks off and it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day at the moment as everybody's waiting for things to swing into action. We should timestamp this one again. We are recording on Wednesday afternoon just prior to the kit launch. Things always do shift very, very quickly at this stage of the season. And we've seen social media being fairly neurotic at the best of times. And we will get onto the kit and no doubt the fallout from that in just a minute or two. But kind of in the absence of any news, it has been going a little bit crazy, hasn't it? Because nature abhors a vacuum and everyone's been going a little bit wild, um, wondering what's going on at Leeds. Any any sort of justification in that, do you think? Well, it's, it's amplified this year, isn't it? Because of the tight turnaround between one season and the next. And when you factor in little breaks that players and, and clubs in general have taken since last season finished, that People have been abroad. Market hasn't really got moving anywhere at all. And also the, the rapid creep towards the, the first weekend of, of the new Premier League season. You can understand why people are getting a little bit restless. Uh, if, you, if you think back to last summer, with the exception of a of a centre-forward, and, and that only really came into play once Kamal Roof went to Anderlecht, it, it was actually pretty orderly. Um, Leeds got several of the, the key deals done. Hilda Costa, Jack Harrison, Ben White. They were over the line at an early stage and there wasn't an awful lot that needed to be done in the end. I know Eddie and Ketia came in just before the deadline, but as I say, that, that was prompted by the fact that Roof was going and you know they had a few alternative options and Bamford was, was playing up front anyway and it, it didn't feel like the, the same sense of urgency. I think because this time they're, they're moving into a higher division and they have got a very established team under Bielsa, but you know, we, we all know that it's just cracked the championship by 10 points, but from front to back is fairly untested in the Premier League. There is the need for signings, there is the need for additions. Um, there is a gaping hole at centre-back if Ben White doesn't sign, which at the moment there isn't much indication of, of that being close or, or of that even happening at all. There is support needed for Bamford up front who isn't proven in the Premier League and while he'll play under Bielsa's, is obviously going to have to step up in, in terms of his finishing. So people on the outside will want to see movement. I don't doubt that on the inside they'll want to start to see movement as well, Bielsa not least. I mean, his, his contract will come around and this is repetitive and I know we, we seem to say the same things over and over again and I mean, you spoke to Angus Kinnear about it over the weekend. I've obviously spoken to the club and, and spoken to people close to Bielsa as well. And it is just consistently the same message. This is agreed, essentially. Um, it's, it's there to be done. It will be done. It will be signed. It's obviously the case of when Bielsa signs it. Um, it's not that they're on different pages with regards to anything, like, for example, a new under-23s coach or any of the, the sort of issues around about the squad. It's just getting it on paper, finalised, translated into the contract in a way that, that Bielsa is happy with. So there are things that kind of could easily have happened in this period so far. And I think if they had happened, people would be feeling a, a lot more happy about it and, and a lot more content. But the, the point I always try to make is that even though Bielsa wants players in quickly and, and wants transfers done as swiftly as possible, he'll, he'll be realistic enough to know that it wasn't necessarily going to be like that in this window. He'll, he'll also be realistic enough to know that Leeds are dealing in a much shorter time frame than, than they would be normally. And I don't sense much panic down at Ellen Road with this. I think, as I say, if you get a week or a couple of weeks on and they're in the same boat, then they're going to be short for the opening weekend of the season. That is the risk. But at the, this stage, they still seem pretty satisfied and pretty happy with the route they're taking. 
All right, let's deal with them in turn then, the big causes of anxiety. Uh, first of which is the kits. Uh, they've been released now. White for the home kit. Doesn't come as a massive surprise. It's going to please the traditionalists. One thing to remember is, as Angus Kinnear pointed out to me and Michael when we chatted to him last week for the square ball, these things are transient and probably not worth getting that upset over. I think that's right. There will be a lot of people out there who don't buy the kit and won't be interested in the kit. I I'm, take the view that I'm too old and fat these days for one, particularly the, the tight-fitting numbers, which seem to be the, the fashion of the day. But there are plenty of people out there who do and there's plenty of people who, who hang on the kit announcement. And, you know, you've got to say that it's late in the day for it to be coming. Again, because of COVID and because of everything that, that's been disrupted, it, it's dropping, you know, three and a half weeks before the season starts. But, you know, it's been there in the background for ages. We've been talking about the Adidas deal and the switch from Kappa for months and months with this. Um, it's not been a huge secret what the kits are going to look like or at least what the, the colour scheme of them is going to be. And I mean, every year there are complaints about the kits. You have people who love them, people who hate them, the people who are in the middle. But the, the charcoal and, and pink, the, the away kit in the previous season were, were some of the best sellers that, that they've ever had, you know. But yeah, I mean, they're here. They, they needed the sponsors to be signed and sealed before they, they could do those. That obviously got done with SBO Top as the, the main shirt sponsor. And let's be honest, they're going to make a lot of money out of them. They are the deal with Adidas um, will be well above what they were being paid with Kappa. Adidas equally, I'm sure, are going to do very well out of the sales that leads always turn over and then and this year it's been well well over um, 100,000 shirts that, that have been have been moved so yeah that is one thing ticked the one thing I always say about the kit is that the kit isn't and you touched on this the kit is not really significant in terms of team building or preparation for the new season you need one and, and it needs to be done but I think the bigger issues away from the commercial side definitely lie closer to Thorpe Arch figure I'd heard on the kits was um about 150,000 for last season. And Angus did say to us last week that the, the grey and pink one was the best ever. So clearly, whilst it's not going to always please the traditionalists, these sort of out there ones do please maybe the, the younger fan. I mean, Michael, are you bothered about this? I mean, we sat and heard Angus out on this and he was fairly forthright about it, saying, look, they're transient in another year. You've got a different one. Blue and yellow are always going to be in the cycle for away kits. I presume you're not thrown to me as a younger fan or indeed someone who is uh, particularly interested in fashion. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm like Phil. I've not, I don't buy the kits for ages. I think this time around there's been a lot of excitement because, which I do share to an extent actually, that feels like we are back in the big time with Adidas. It feels like we got relegated with us dropping down from Nike and then going to Bates' Macron deal for absolutely what it felt like forever that we were hampered by their dreadful kits. So... I mean, there's a, there's an extent to which, you know, having Adidas back is nice, but I'm not massively bothered. It's, it's a very significant commercial deal. We, sh- we shouldn't pretend otherwise. And, and Adidas, to my mind, are one of the manufacturers who produce some of the, the better kits. Uh, in terms of the colours, I mean, I, I spoke to I spoke to someone a, a long time ago, uh, or, or beginning of last season, about kits and particularly about the more outlandish designs, the ones that really break from tradition. And, and he was saying to me that the reason they're so successful is because they do tap into the, the younger market. They can be more fashionable than your typical football shirt. And I think Leeds have found that in the last couple of seasons, particularly with the charcoal and, and pink one. There was more of a, a fashion streak to it than, than there was a, a sporting streak. But no, I mean, in commercial terms, you should never underestimate the value of this to Leeds and, and the fact that it is very, very significant to have Adidas on board as the new supplier. And the financial part of it is where, where they will really, really benefit. I know that the supporters on the street want the kits. It's the it's the merchandise itself that's important to them. But from Leeds' perspective, it's it's all about the money and it's all about the prestige. And that is another thing Angus was keen to stress. This is It's a commercial thing and we have to treat it as such. As much as our identity is wrapped up in it, it's part and parcel of them making money for the club and for Adidas as well. Uh, on to Bielsa then the one that has been reported. Uh, now, Gianluca Di Marzio, who's an Italian journalist, uh, reliable, has reported on Wednesday afternoon that the deal with Bielsa is done. I mean, at the time of recording, we've not had any official confirmation, but as you touched on before, Phil, it's basically agreed. And again, when we spoke to Angus last week, he was saying, look, we're all on exactly the same page. There's no distance between us, you know, the club, uh, Bielsa, what he wants out of this. It's just going to take time because that's how he works. Yeah, so for example, um, at one point last week, they were going over the media requirements that Bielsa is going to have to deal with up in the Premier League, and and they are very different. I mean, you can have, I'm told, up to seven separate post-match interviews um, with rights holders after an, an individual game, and... You know, he, he, like any other coach, is going to be required to fulfil those requirements, even though he doesn't like one-on-ones and even though he, he was very resistant to doing Sky when he first came over. It, it's 
it's stipulated in the contract that coaches have to adhere to this and the Premier League expect them to. So it's not a big deal and it wasn't, from what I gathered, that he didn't have any great problem with that. But what he does want is for it all to be mapped out and he wants it all to be plain in black and white, what he's looking at, what he's facing, what he's going to have to to deal with. And, you know, it's it's other things like the appointment of a 23s coach, which I think is is very likely to come internally from from one of his existing coaching staff. We'll we'll see as that goes. But he, again, just wants to be clear on how that's going to work. And if somebody does move, is there going to be scope to bring in another coach to fill a a vacancy that's left now that that Carlos Colburn is gone and he no longer has the same number of people in the dugout? And and the answer to all this from Leeds is yes. And and I think a, a lot of coaches would have signed already knowing that that this stuff will be dealt with and, and that they will hold up their end of the bargain. And I think Bielsa knows that they will hold up their end of the bargain. It has just been a matter of getting it all down in writing and all down in writing in a way that, that he's satisfied with. And, you know, I, I, I kind of repeat this point, but if you watch the contract negotiations in the summer when he f- was first appointed and follow the contract negotiations last summer, bearing in mind that last summer they weren't changing division, they were going into back into a league that, that he already knew and understood and had, had coped very well with, then it, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that it's been slow. I, I think, you know, I can understand why people will be wondering why it's been quite this slow. But that, from what I gather, is, is just him. Have the club uh, indicated what's going to be happening for pre-season? Because obviously by now, by this stage of the season, a few weeks to go, you'd normally be, be you know, racking up two or three games a week. Is there any anything in the pipeline? Yeah, they, they won't go abroad and the main reason for that is that little by little most of the countries in Europe are starting to fall into the quarantine restrictions. So you'll have seen that, that Liverpool, I think, were planning to go to France and, and ended up in Austria. Leeds will, will go around the UK um, rather than, than go abroad. And, and actually, in, in the previous two summers, Bielsa hasn't really shown much inclination to fly out to anywhere hot or to, to anywhere different. He's been, been quite happy to use the friendlies that they've had in the UK. I know they they had the Australian tour last summer, but that wasn't really his decision. You know, that was a, a commercial move more than anything, particularly the game against Manchester United. And and as much as the games were, were you know, good for them and, and everything else, he was as happy in the first summer when they were going to Southend and, and going to Oxford. From what I gather, they'll try to arrange around about seven friendlies um, and the squad will be split over those friendlies. Some players will play in some, some players will, will play in others. They don't have a massive amount of time to pack those games in. And, and you have to remember as well that they are coming off the back of a your pretty intense stretch of nine matches. So the match fitness of the players should already be good. Without any doubt, they need tuned up and there'll be aspects that Bielsa will want to tidy up tactically. I don't expect him to change much, if, if anything particularly, but he'll want everyone to be sharp and he'll want everybody to be on the ball. So they will play games. Um, they will be based in the UK and we're, we're just waiting to hear who the, the opposition are going to be. Are they all going to be available for fans to watch? Do you know? That I can't answer. I would assume that it would make sense to, to broadcast them on LETV and they've done that in previous summers. It hasn't been a problem or, or an issue. There should be some scope to do that. In terms of fans attending the games, uh, I would suspect not. It doesn't look as if English football, certainly at, at this level, is moving in that direction quickly enough. And regardless of the fact that the friendlies rather than organised league games or cup games. I don't think we'll change the restrictions around them. But yeah, I mean, in in previous summers, most, if not all, of the friendlies have been televised. So I'm I'm absolutely certain that that would be the case again. The biggest source of anxiety over the last couple of weeks has been transfers and the the sense that Leeds United are not moving and not doing anything and we need players in because the season kicks off in a couple of weeks. And let's go for the big one first, Ben White. You're saying it's not looking good at this stage, but there have been, and I'm... I'm reluctant to put too much stock into what happens on social media because madness, I think, that way lies. But we've seen a little bit of movement on on something this afternoon, which is Ben White, who is not a prolific Instagrammer, has posted a four-minute highlights reel of his uh, time at Leeds. And he's just posted a little smiling emoji um, at the end of that. Now, in the comments, you've got a guy called Louis Morrison, who former Love Island contestant, and he's a National League footballer, of all people, has commented with, big move pending. And he's giving it the eyes and the flames. And Ben White has liked this. Now, we've got to be careful not to put too much stock in this. But these things rarely appear by accident. No, I don't think it will be accidental. I mean, it's very difficult to speak for Ben White. But from from what I understand, he is keen on a move to Leeds. And and he does appreciate the amount of progress and the way he's developed under Bielsa. And and in that season in the Championship, I think there's also a a feeling deep down that he has been given a chance at Leeds that wasn't there at Brighton and and wasn't necessarily going to be there at Brighton until he played 
uh, as he did. And, and, you know, Brighton, in their defence, might say, well, that is the proof or the evidence we need we needed to see that there was a, a definite Premier League player in there. But they haven't been able to extend this contract so far. They haven't been able to raise his salary. The numbers and the figures that have been put to him haven't been accepted. And he does have a contract to 2022. But I think in order for there to be a feeling of commitment down there, and this isn't to say that Brighton would feel forced into selling him, but in order for there to feel like the commitment was there, you, you would think that he would have to take up a new deal and, and Leeds know that if he does that and, and he signs a new contract down there then that transfer is is absolutely dead in the water. So effectively dealing with a player who would be keen and, and a player who they could absolutely engage with but with a club who are not keen in the slightest and the state of play is that a third bid has gone in from Leeds valuation of about £25 million and, and that's an increase on the initial bid of £18 million and, and a second bid of, of £22 million. and you know these are chunky offers which would be fees up front there would be incentives included in, in these deals as well. So the transfer would be worth more than is, is just written on the paper in, in basic terms. And it would clearly smash the transfer record at Leeds as well. I do expect this to be Leeds' final bid, though. That's certainly the message we seem to, to be getting. And I do think as well that there'll be a, a pretty tight deadline on this because they, they can't let this run on indefinitely. They can't get, let it go on too much longer before they start engaging other centre-backs. Um, the contracts he's been offered down there have not been accepted. He's, he's been saying no to them. And essentially, something is going to have to give with this because... The message from Brighton consistently, you know, to, to people who speak to them, to Leeds as well, is, is that he won't be sold. And, you know, the message from Leeds is still that, that he is their top target and the person they, they want to get in. So this is going to have to go one way, or, one way or the other very, very soon. And even though clubs say that a lot and clubs say that to either drive up the price or just to, to kind of draw it out a little bit and not be seen to, to sell in a way that they shouldn't. I think Leeds and, and certainly us as well get the impression that they're, they're not bluffing here. And I'm certain that there would be a price that they would sell at because everybody has a price. But Leeds have to be careful with this one. They, they can only go so far in terms of valuation. Uh, they can also only go so far in terms of timing. They they cannot afford to get too far down the line with this one and find that it isn't happening, that it just is is not going to go through, and that White is no longer an option. And they do have fallbacks. They they're very keen on um, Robin Koch over at Freiburg, um, who's somebody that that um, Alter in particular has been scouting for a long time. He, he has a lot of similar attributes to Ben White. He's similar age category. He would probably cost less than the, the well, it almost certainly cost less than the amount that Brighton would be looking for if they were backed into a corner. And the thing you have to remember as well is that at the moment, even though Bielsa you know, has in his head the idea that Ailing can shift the cross from right back to partner, Liam Cooper, there isn't an out-and-out centre-back to partner Cooper at this stage. Barardi's not fit. White is back at Brighton and, and isn't Leeds player as it stands. And the games are coming around very, very rapidly. So they will have to make a decision with this and, and they will have to leap one way or the other. And if Brighton crack, they crack and, and Leeds will do Ben White. But I just don't think they're going to hang on indefinitely for this one. How serious is the interest from elsewhere? We, there have been press reports about Liverpool and Chelsea being interested and they would, I guess, have deeper pockets than us if, if they were in the market. Are they are they serious, do you think? Liverpool certainly are in, in the sense that they've followed him all season um, and scouted him really, really closely. But as it stands, Leeds are the only club to table an, an offer for him. And I think if there were bids to come from elsewhere, you would imagine that there would be some rumblings already at this stage and, and that things might be developing. I suppose a slight difference for Liverpool is that they don't need him through the door in a first-team sense in the next few weeks. You know, they have centre-backs, they have an established team, it's a title-winning team. He would be coming in as, as somebody to develop and to, to earn his place, whereas at Leeds, as we know, he would walk back into the team tomorrow when he's Bielsa ready, he knows exactly how Leeds play and what Bielsa wants from him. But no, from what we are told, Leeds are the only team who've made serious contact about this um, in this window, uh, as it stands, and, and the only team to offer. So it does feel to me, certainly as, as we speak, like it will be Leeds or Brighton. One of the things that Angus Kinnear said to us was that they are prepared to sort of pay over and above what is perhaps his, his true worth. Always hard to gauge such a thing anyway, because he is Bielsa ready and he can slot straight into the side and they have an appreciation of that at Leeds. That's, that's not in question. And you wonder if that would then push the price up to a level that, okay, Chelsea could probably walk in because they're throwing money around for fun at the minute, aren't they? But uh, again, with Liverpool, they're not awash with money at the minute and it's not a regular established uh, first team starting position, is it? So are they going to want to drop 26, 28 million quid on a lad who's just going to be their third or fourth choice? It, it just feels to me like, and it's it just feels like the stars have aligned and it just depends on now whether he can make the significant moves down at Brighton, Ben White or his agent anyway to start getting him out of there. That's probably the feeling at this end now that it is going to take 
a transfer request or it's going to take some some agitation on White's part to make this happen or certainly to push the door open a little more. Whether he's inclined to do that, I don't know. Whether Brighton would react positively to that or not, I can't say either. It's certainly there to be done, but I think even though Leeds are willing to pay over what they would think is, is his top valuation, even though they, they would really push the boat out for this one and, and quite happily smash the, the transfer record that's been there for, for 20 years since since Rio Ferdinand signed. There's got to be a limit. There has to be an upper limit. And, you know, it, it, it's tempted to get sucked really deep into these ones because he does look outstanding. And, and I think there are a lot of players you look at and appreciate as good footballers. There aren't so many that you look at and see really, really extreme talent, in, particularly in their area of the field. And, and he is so accomplished and he is so good in, in the aspects of a, a modern centre-back that you do feel like there's a potential England international there. You do feel like there's a centre-back who, even at 30 million or 30 million plus, could turn out to be very, very good value. They just need to make sure that they don't end up offering or paying something that goes well beyond this true value and actually turns out to be a, ultimately a, a waste of money. I don't mean in terms of, of what he can do, but in terms of what you what you pay in the end. Is it just going to be one centre-back, though, do you think? We're not going to see, because I, I think arguably... Ever since Bales has been here, we've we've needed an extra centre back, which I know he's not been particularly keen on. No, I mean I remember putting that question to him way back in August of his first season when Leeds went to Swansea and Liam Cooper was injured in the warm up and um, and wasn't able to play. And afterwards, you know, I said to him, "Is you know, is that going to time that's left in the transfer window?" And I think at that point there were about ten days, a week to go, something like that. You know, is this going to kind of twist your arm, and and are you going to feel as if? You know, you need to bring somebody in, and he just gave me a really perplexed, nonplus look, and said, "No, you know, it's done plenty of players who can fill in there. I've plenty of ideas of what to do. I, I just don't want another centre back kicking around when Cooper is fit. And and you know, likewise this season, Cooper and White have played a, a heck of a lot in that area. And Berardi was always great cover. He was his great fallback, and his his record in the team is superb. And clearly, Leeds are not going to be able to to rely on him at any stage of this season. He just is not going to be." fit, match fit um, to, to play in any of these games, I don't think. But no, I mean, I, I'm told that it will be one centre-back coming in. It'll be White or it'll be A and other, and, and that's all Bielsa wants. And I say this more and more, it's it's kind of pointless discussing the merits of that because it's worked for him so far, the small squad. It's, it's what he does and no amount of argument from our end is going to change it. Just a quick word, if we can, on addressing the idea of the transfer request. And a lot of people have kind of clung on to this idea of, well, just walk in there, put your transfer request in, but... It's maybe not that simple, is it? You can't just go in there and immediately burn all your bridges because there is a risk, albeit probably a small one, that they say, well, sorry, you're not going anywhere and you can go into our under-23s and um, just sit there for a bit. I mean, I know there's this idea of chucking somebody in the reserves and letting them rot and it doesn't really happen because it's an expensive uh, it's an expensive policy to pursue, but the transfer request is not that straightforward either, is it? No, it's not. There are PR implications. I mean, it doesn't often reflect well on players when they do put in transfer requests. It very much depends on the on the circumstances. But I think we can see it from the Leeds bubble where you want him to come here. You can see the, the value that he adds to the team and, and why he would be a terrific signing. I think if you take the neutral view of what's going on at Brighton, they've been a, a very, very progressive club now for a, a good number of years. They've been successful. They've invested in the right areas. Um, and they are making the noises this summer to say that, that he's going to get a chance or he's at least going to be looked at far more closely by by Graham Potter. Whether that will manifest itself into actual appearances and actual games is impossible for, for anyone to know, but it, it comes back to that, that thing, doesn't it? If you compete for a place and, and you do what you have to and you, you catch your manager's eye, then the chances are you, you will be in the team. I also think that transfer requests become much easier when you're an established um, and experienced player. It's not necessarily so straightforward at the age of 22. He, he does have an outstanding season that leads behind him, but that, you know, that aside from time in League One, in League Two is the, the extent of his CV and he'll be sensible and he'll be a clever guy and, and he'll, he'll know that he can't do this in a way that does burn bridges down there because ultimately if Brighton say to him okay well you know you can go you can leave but you can only leave for this price and nobody meets that price then you know he can draw a line probably under any thought of actually playing for Brighton if he finds that he is there beyond the end of the transfer window so it's not easy it is, it is delicate and it, it's a kind of incendiary move isn't it it's like the, the sort of final play final um, final card that you've got to serve on them um, um, and it's not something you would do rashly. And bearing in mind, they're only just back in training as well. So it probably has to have a little bit more time for this one to play out. Well, let's move on and rifle through quickly the other targets that have sort of been mentioned in dispatches. Um, ben Rama, gone a bit cold there, you reckon? 
Yeah, I mean, you've sort of written in our notes for this about the video over the weekend, you know, of him, um, the drone over the villa that he was at and the, the Rolex watches, the swimming pool and everything else. And it hasn't kind of passed leads by that. I think they're very aware of the importance of the the atmosphere in the dressing room. And I think are probably more concerned and drawn to low-key or low-maintenance players than they, they have ever been in all the time I've I've covered them. It's such a, a key factor for Bielsa, players who he can rely on to basically be be good characters. You know, character is hugely important to him in, in his own way, even though he doesn't engage with the players on a personal level and, and everything else. He likes, for example, your Jack Harrisons, your Calvin Phillips, your, your guys that he can mould and guys who will go with him and, and will do what they're told and, and follow his instructions. And it's not to say that Ben Rama wouldn't do that. It's just that I think they are starting to wonder whether or not that is really the, the route that they should go down. I wouldn't rule that out entirely because, he, I mean, he is a very, very good player and, and you would think that he, of most players in the Championship, has the capacity to step up and, and to thrive in a, a higher division. But it's been interesting over the last couple of days. We, we mentioned Batshuayi that, um, that Chelsea in the last podcast, it doesn't seem as if much has moved there particularly. But Ollie Watkins again being mentioned to me at Brentford, somebody who had, again, a bit like Ben Rama, had certainly expect Premier League club to, to have a go at this summer. But it, the thing that just keeps striking me is the, the absence of major deals elsewhere. I know that at Manchester City you've had uh, Nathan Aki, for example, so £40 million there, although they, they sold Leroy Sané to Bayern Munich, so there's money coming in and, and money coming out. And we've had Joe Hart's free transfer to Spurs. There have been a few other deals doing the rounds, but I don't feel that any team has significantly changed, with the possible exception of Chelsea with Werner coming in and, and Zayek, that deal that was done back at, after the, the January window finished. With the, with the exception of them, it doesn't feel to me as if any team in the Premier League has significantly changed so far. I, I would think that the analysis that Bielsa has been able to do of Premier League sides will be as useful for him now as it was before the transfer window opened because we haven't seen anybody really leap into the market in a way that has drastically changed everybody. Um, and it's a, kind of str- it's a kind of strange window so far. There aren't many loans. The, the loans don't seem to be in huge supply in terms of what's been offered to the market. And it is just requiring an, an awful lot of patience. But I go back to what I said at the start, which is that Leeds can't be as patient as everybody else because they do need players quickly and they need players for the start of the season and, and probably at centre-back they need somebody more than anybody else. Do you think it's hesitancy over the financial, well, potential financial insecurities of playing behind closed doors or is it is it just the lack of time between seasons that's causing it? There is a little bit of that because clubs are struggling to work out what the budgets are, are going to be. I mean, in, in the case of Leeds, they've obviously sold a huge whack of season tickets anyway, 23,000 or thereabouts, and that will go for a lot of other clubs. The income is kind of there. And, you know, as, as Leeds did, clubs are finding ways to sort of compensate for the fact that people can't get through the gates. So your live streams online, your programmes and, and everything else, it's, it's not as if the match day revenue... Um, has gone completely, but it's the walk-up revenue that no longer exists or, or won't do until crowds start coming back in. I, I think as well, there was possibly an expectation, I don't mean at Leeds specifically, but in, uh, as a whole, that because of COVID, clubs were going to be forced to sell a little bit cheaper than they might otherwise have done, that valuations were going to drop. But actually, I think what you are seeing is is a resistance to selling cheaply because clubs kind of realise that if football does realign itself and if it gets back to normal and by next summer we are as we were before COVID kicked in, then the valuations will increase again and people will pay more money and, and you have to be financially prudent in that sense. But it does just feel as if right across the league you're waiting for somebody to light the fuse. Another factor, perhaps the late closing of the transfer window, because that's not until the was it fifth of October. So there is plenty of time for people to do business, and it's much like the old principle of leaving your homework to the last minute, isn't it? We always see that mad dash towards the end of the window. It does feel very slow right now. Well, this is it, and you know, if you're not in Leeds' position and you don't need players urgently, then you don't feel the same pressure. Uh, and it's possible that by the time you get round to October, crowds will be returning in some degree. Clubs will be a little bit clearer on where the budgets are at, what what their incomes what their income's going to be. And also, they're going to hit the point where if they need money from transfers, even if they've been bluffing or refusing to blink all the way through the summer, that is the point where if they want the cash, they're, they're going to have to deal. As I say, it's just different for Leeds because they need to get their ducks in a row before the games get going in earnest. You know, they, they can't afford to get too far into the Premier League league season without the resources and the, the reinforcements that they're, they're going to need. So, you know, pretty pretty crucial two or three weeks coming up now. Oh, we're going to have some fun with this one. We're going to have some fun with this one. 
Now then, the Phil Hayes Show is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. And Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. Gentlemen, you're both a bit light of hair on top of your heads. Should I ask the question or...? Well, I'm glad that there is an expert out there in um, below-the-belt grooming because I certainly can't claim to be one. don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will read what's been put in front of me then in that case, which is we've gone years without using the right tools for the job so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce ooh, manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. You can get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. Let's talk Premier League. So fixtures are out and starts don't get much more difficult than Liverpool away. It's a fixture that makes it all suddenly feel very real. Fantastic game as well. It's it's funny for Liverpool because it's a bit of a repeat of last season for them. They had title winners Norwich there um, on the, the opening weekend. There's some, some similarities to Leeds in the sense that Fark didn't change much um, about their tactics or their style. They were coming up off the back of, of topping the division. And, you know, Leeds will go there in, in the same sort of vogue and the same sort of spirit. Um, and I think it is, let's be honest, as, as difficult a game as you're going to get in the Premier League. And I, I still have Liverpool down as favourites for the title. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad time to be going. You know, it's, it's only recently that the season's finished. Leeds look very, very strong in the last nine games. There won't be much ring rust there. I don't think they should be sharp. They should be in, in good shape. And and I think for a fixture like that, you, you would love to go there and win. But the realist in you will tell you that it's it's more than 1,200 days since Liverpool last lost a league game at Anfield. So I think the key, unlike Norwich last season, would be to go, to play well, to make a contest of it and to kind of come away with you with your confidence intact. The things that jump out, obviously, are Manchester United away uh, in December, just before Christmas. And straight away, as I was looking at looking through the fixtures um, first thing, my, my um, gaze was drawn to that little run in April where they've got Manchester City on the 10th, they've got Liverpool on the 17th, and then Manchester United on the 24th, which is a hell of a run and, and coming at a, a critical stage of the season. I think one of the big bonuses for Leeds is that by that point, it may well be that you've got crowds back in the stadium. So for two of the biggest games, Liverpool and and Manchester United, you potentially have a, a packed or a, a fairly full Ellen Road for that. The other thing that's a, that's quite a sizable shift, and we were chatting amongst ourselves about this earlier in the week, was that, that there are very few uh, midweek dates um, in this fixture list, and and you know that's pretty much part of your staple diet in the EFL. You have a lot of midweek games, you have a lot of long midweek trips, and this time round it's going to be December before Leeds do play on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night um, in the Premier League. Um, the only thing to look out for, though, is the, the Carabao Cup um, starting you know, very soon and, and very quickly. Leeds obviously skip round one um, as a result of being promoted. But the second round's falling on the 15th and 16th of September. Um, the third round's on the 22nd and the 23rd. And the fourth round is on the 29th and the 30th. So actually, it, it may well turn out, if Leeds make good progress, that the first month of the season is incredibly congested. And although there won't be that many Premier League games in it, they will have a, a lot of fixtures. But I have to say, it, it gave me a, a warm glow reading through them and seeing the names that are in there and, and thinking about not only the clubs you're going to be up against now, but the individual players and the and the coaches as well. And, and I do think that for the opening weekend of Leeds first season back after 16 years and, and with Bielsa as coach, Klopp versus Bielsa at Anfield is a fantastic narrative. That's one thing to mention, isn't it? That the, the fixtures are starting a month later than usual, but there's only basically about four, five extra days being added on at the end of the season. So... It's going to be a little bit of a squeeze, particularly in September, but it might end up being a golden opportunity for um, not one of the Champions League clubs to maybe pinch a Carabao Cup this year because with all those fixtures in September, you can't imagine they're going to be fielding many first teams, can you? No, I don't think so. Uh, although I'll be interested to see what Bielsa's approach to that is. He, he's somebody who likes to play his strongest team as often as he can, but the Cups are definitely the area where even he has been more inclined to weaken his lineup, he, he doesn't like to talk about it as a weakened lineup, but it is, you know, a lot. The, his opportunity to rest a lot of senior players, and you know, he's he's done that in both the FA Cup and the the Carabao Cup. I mean, we we spoke about this earlier in the week, Dan. But the thing that jumped out to me and, and also to you immediately was the fact that the first 
midweek league game and obviously some matches are going to get rearranged for Sky to Friday nights or Monday nights but in terms of actual week you know midweek schedule the first one falls on December the 16th and we normally in a typical championship season you've had about four or five midweek games by that point and and Tuesdays and Wednesdays at Ellen Road or away from home are are kind of part of the calendar and and what you're used to and it is that funny thought that if Leeds hope this doesn't happen but if they went out in the second round of the Carabao Cup it it would would then be you know the best part of three months before another midweek game so you start to get an immediate sense of the total shift that you have from the all-out permanent mayhem of the championship to albeit a better division the Premier League and a higher quality division but nothing like the same intensity of schedule. Are you going to miss going to Cardiff midweek? Well, this is the thing you see. They, I remember speaking to somebody who, who worked at Leeds about four or five years ago and, and they were saying that it was never publicised this and the EFL would never admit to it, but there was essentially an agreement between clubs and I don't know if it's still in place or still exists. That the longer midweek trips would be planned, the longer trips, sorry, away trips would be planned for midweek because it allowed them to arrange games at the weekend, which would bring in the bigger crowds. The, the theory being that for midweek games, night games, you were likely to get a smaller attendance anyway, so try and maximise... Um, you crowd at the weekend when when you get more people through the gates. And fine in theory and and fine in principle, but it did mean that you were getting Fulham away on a Tuesday night, you were getting Cardiff away, you were getting Swansea away midweek, you know, those those long, long trips. And it didn't seem to me to be much of a coincidence that that's how it it kept falling. So in answer to that question, kind of yes, kind of no, because I, I never feel like you can get too many games. But the thought of not having to trail in from Swansea at four in the morning will be appealing to more people than just me, I imagine. Yeah, especially on a school night. Nobody needs that. Absolutely nobody needs that at all. Um, it's going to be interesting seeing what it's like for the players having that, just that little bit of extra downtime potentially. I mean, not that Bielsa really gives them it. I mean, we've, we've seen, haven't they? They've been in doing pre-season training on a, on a Saturday evening in this last week or so. So it will allow more murder ball sessions though, which is, is that a Wednesday that normally happens, Phil? Yeah, it normally happens midweek, but only when they don't have um, a midweek game. If they do have a midweek game, there's no way of factoring that session in. And I think in, when it comes to the, the training loads that, that players carry and the limits that they're supposed to, to reach, it, it would be too much for them. But yeah, I mean, that, that does look like it will be there all the way through the season, much to be else's delight, I would imagine. But touching something interesting there, I mean, it, it's the... It's easy to make the assumption that fewer games is is better for the players. And I think there are probably points in the EFL or in the Championship where they do get pushed to the point where they're playing so much that some players' bodies will will struggle to take it. But these days, your fitness coaches and your your analytics guys talk a lot about, you know, they need to not overcoach players and overtrain them, but also to not undertrain them, you know, to, to hit the right levels so that they're used to the intensity at the weekend, so they're not falling under the level they need to be at, but also not going over it. So they'll, they'll probably have to manage the players slightly differently this season because they won't have so many midweek games and they won't be cramming so many fixtures in. But it has to be said, if you look at the last two seasons, Bielsa seems to know exactly what he's doing when it, and the people around him, the coaches around him, seem to know what they're doing when it comes to managing the players' bodies. So how do we think Leeds are going to fare then across this next season? I mean, again, we we often take the mickey out of you and your predicting abilities, Phil. And I think it would probably be dangerous even at this stage to to try and predict where we're going to finish in the league. But what would represent a good season for Leeds? Well, as a basic starting point, survival, definitely. And, and I don't mean a sort of staggering survival. I don't mean a sort of desperate survival. Although in the end, I think you, you take it anyway that you come. I, I just think it would be good for Bielsa and, and good, for Leeds to, to see and to feel some natural progress from being champions of the championship and title winners by a 10-point margin to actually feeling like they have properly found their feet and that it hasn't been a, a real scramble in the way that, for example, it has been for, for Aston Villa um, in the past 12 months or so. I was going through the odds earlier and I, I used Bet365 because they're obviously one of our, our sponsors on, on the potty. And they're, they're 7-2 to, to be relegated, they're 5-1 to one on to stay up, which I found particularly interesting because both Fulham and West Brom are, are pretty much even money uh, to stay up as opposed to the, the very short odds that, that Leeds have. 9-4 to four for a top half finish against 11-4 um, on for bottom half, which again seems about right to me. I think that, that seems like a, a fair reflection. But I mean, rather than me predicting, I'd, I'd go with something that Rory Smith, the, the football writer at the New York Times, was saying to me when he was here for, for one of the last games of the season at, at Ellen Road. And he said that it, as long as you've got a good defensive structure, which Leeds definitely do and certainly have had with, with Ben White and the team, as long as the, there is some inherent organised there. 
Teams that tend to attack in the Premier League tend to do well and tend to find that it's quite a profitable approach. To, to be ambitious does have its give its bring us rewards and, and can pay off quite handsomely. And you know that Leeds are going to do that. You know on the Bielsa they're going to try and dominate possession if they can. You know that they, they will look for goals, they will try to win games, they won't play for, for point a point here and there, they'll be aggressive. And, and I would like to think that, that that would pay off for them. And if you go in on what Bielsa has done with the team so far and the way that his tactics have worked, it's not difficult to have a lot of confidence in him. I, I do feel like this is a, a, a great time to be going up. A similar point was raised in the conversation we had with Angus Kinnear last week, which was that teams with an identity, like you look at Sheffield United last year, are the ones that tend to do okay. And I think we all appreciate that the, the second season is of, often more difficult than the first because you're no longer a surprise package. But I take, or I place great hope in the fact that we have a really clear game plan and the players all know exactly what they should be doing when it comes to Leeds and that attacking is part and parcel of that. And also the fact that over the past two years, opposition coaches and teams have found Bielsa's side very difficult to work out. It's always been one of the things that stuck out most to me is that you, you couldn't really have a manager who telegraphs his tactics and his style more than Bielsa. I mean, it is it is all there in front of you and right to the, the depths of the, the Spygate presentation, there's very little that he's trying to, to hide from anyone. And, and you would think that in, in an analytical sense, that would make Leeds easier to assess and easier to... not not just to work out, but, you know, easier to come up with game plans against. But when I wrote my long piece on Bielsa, I spoke to Paul Warren at, at Rotherham about what it's like to play a Bielsa team. And he's a huge fan of Bielsa. He's got a lot of time for him. And I think I really, I really appreciated last season the opportunity to, to manage against him um, in the dugout. But he said one of the things that they spotted was that from when... Opposition teams crossed from the right wing. Leeds were not great at covering the near post. Uh, and that was a bit of a tactic that they ran through and practiced before they came to Ellen Road and again um, down in, in Rotherham. But he said, the problem is you get pressed so hard and Leeds are so energetic that in order for that to happen and in order for you to take advantage of that, first of all, you need the ball, which is not easy. Secondly, you need the ball in the right area. Thirdly, you need your winger to make the right run. And if he does make the right run and get the ball, you need him to present you know, pretty much the perfect cross into the near post. Then you need your striker to make the right run to the near post and you need him to get a good, very good, strong touch to try and turn it in. And, and beyond that, you have to beat the goalkeeper. And he said, when you look at it like that, and he said, I've never said this to the players at the time because I don't want to be unduly negative with them. But when you look at it like that, and that is part of your game plan, you realise how difficult it is. You know, you realise how, how low the percentages are, the percentage chance of, of you actually getting through, which is why if you look at Leeds' defensive record this season just gone, it's, it's absolutely outstanding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the identity will work for them and I, I do hope that the fact that it, it has been a struggle for other teams to work it out will, will continue in the Premier League. And, and you know, as, as I was saying previously, it, it surely helps as well that there hasn't been much movement in the transfer market amongst other clubs. That the, the teams that were there last season look that, as if, you know, there or thereabouts, they're going to be much the same sort of teams this season coming up. It, it should be the case with all the analysis they do that Leeds are, are very clear on what it is they're going to be facing. I think my concern looking at the table this year was that from from their time in the Championship, I didn't see there as being a huge difference between Sheffield United and Norwich. Like I thought they both were look very impressive in the Championship and then all of a sudden they've had a season where there's 30-odd points between them. While I do think we'll be okay, I do still have that fear that, you know, if we, we've struggled to take chances this year and if we do that again in the Premier League, we might just lose an awful lot of games, 1-0, 2-0, that it may be in the Championship we were scraping results in. So I've, I have some concerns there, but I think the, the consistency of knowing that this is essentially the third year we're going out with more or less the same squad, hopefully we'll, there'll be some additions there that'll that'll help us along the way, but we're not having to tear things up and start again. And as you've said, Bielsa just, he doesn't do that anyway, does he? He's going to always keep it very consistent. What I would say about Sheffield United is that it had been going well for them under Chris Wilder for longer than it had been going well under Daniel Fart. Norwich still, it's still, when I think back to the season before last and, and you know them winning the title, they, they still surprised me greatly from the 3-0 defeat that, that they suffered to Leeds. And, and at that point, you know, a lot of noise down in Norwich about, the need to sack Fark about the, the fact that they should probably change manager to him suddenly, you know, turning up this team who, who ran away with the league is still a surprise. Um, I, I think as well, I just wonder whether if Sheffield United had found themselves in the, the sort of straits that Norwich were in, um, in the Premier League, whether Wilder would have been far more adaptable uh, and would have been more reactive to it than, than Fark was. I, I, 
I got the sense with Norwich that they were persisting and they were persisting and they were persisting. And by the time it kind of dawned on everybody that they were going to go, it was far too late to, to do anything about it. My feeling with, with Leeds is that they sounds simplistic this, but they can't, having waited 16 years to, to go up and, and more to the point, looking at the type of club they are, I don't think they can afford to go back down in one season. I just don't think yo-yoing is of any benefit to them and, and of any value to them. You know, it, it seemed to work for Burnley. Um, they've been down, been back up, now very, very established. But to my mind, Leeds are just not that not that sort of club. I don't think it would work. I don't think that the fan base would tolerate it. And also, there are things going on in the background, like, for example, the, the planned expansion of the West Stand and the, the intention at some point to hike the, the capacity of the stadium up from 35,000 to closer to 50, which I think in the Premier League, 50 would be far more useful than a, than a stadium which is absolutely packed out and, and basically has people banging on the door for tickets. But they can only do that, regardless of what the plans are and regardless of what they've got drawn up and how they think they're going to fund it. They can only do that if they feel like they're getting a foothold in the division because there probably isn't a lot of point in having a 50,000-seater stadium down in the Championship. And, and if they are moving in that direction and if that's what they want to be and if they want to you know, kind of grow again as a club... They have to be Premier League established and they have to be starting every season with the confidence that they will be staying up and that, that the financial investments they're making are, are prudent. So it's a very, very big year coming up. As I say, I think we spoke earlier about what should be the target. Definitely not to go down, but I think the, the thing that would make everybody happy is if they feel like they've gone into the Premier League and been quite comfortable there, if they've gone in and properly coped. It was interesting to learn that from Angus when we spoke to him and to get a time scale and to get a scale of the plans as well. And he said two years in the Premier League and they will, they'll push the button on the, on the redevelopment of the West Stand and the whole thing will, will come down. It'll be a rebuild uh, from the ground up because the facilities on that side of the ground just need to be brought up to, to modern standards. And we also got the news that we've got 20,000 people on the season ticket waiting list, which is a phenomenal turnaround from where we were four or five years ago. And it just goes to show what uh, some sensible direction and, and, having people at the helm that you can believe in has done in terms of engaging Leeds' fan base because what, 23,500 season ticket holders, 20,000 on the waiting list. We can do the maths on that. You're, you're at mid-40s already, which then leaves some tickets for floating voters and away fans, doesn't it? So, I mean, Angus said they would comfortably fill a 50,000-seat stadium for even the smaller games in the Premier League given what they've learned about Leeds United's supporter base. Yeah, and, and you know, to, to touch on where we started with this podcast and the fact that we're still waiting for Bielsa to sign and we're still waiting for players to come through the door and everything else. I, I, I see why it, it makes people twitchy, but I think when you look at the bigger picture of what's going on, the the numbers and the and the facts speak for themselves. The, you know, being out of the division in the first place and as, as champions by 10 points is, is, a, is a mega achievement and, and done on the back of what was a really inspired appointment with Bielsa. The improvement of individual players who've gone from looking, you know, like also runs in the championship really to some of the best in the league by by quite a street. And and then exactly that, you know, it, people do vote with their feet. And I saw it with Bates when, remember the, the game against Wolves in 2006 where Jay Bothroyd pinged one in the top corner with uh, about four minutes into injury time. And you know, there were 16,000 odd there that day. It was such a, a low point. Because people didn't, the motivation to go wasn't there. It was too expensive. There was no ambition. There was no feeling that anything was happening. That you know, the fear of missing out just did not exist um, at that point. And you know, to have twenty three thousand t- season tickets sold and then a, a waiting list of, of twenty beyond that does suggest to you that you know, overwhelmingly, people are very, very happy with the direction of the club. And I know good signings help that. And I know you know a good season in the Premier League will will consolidate that feeling. But I do generally feel like that in a very, very good place. I feel like the world has changed as well since we've been away in terms of the Premier League because it was through the mid-90s and down to our relegation. There were seasons when we didn't really sell out games, which I, I just don't think could be the case anymore. I think it's it become enough of a of a leisure product without getting into sort of businessy about it that, you know, it, it is now going to attract people who wouldn't have gone to football 20 years ago. The only way in which the games won't sell out is if you get five or six years down the line and you're still in the Premier League and consistently finishing 15th, 16th and it, it's all becoming a, a little bit tedious which is always the risk in the Premier League because it's a very, very difficult league to, to compete in. I mean, Leeds have a big wage bill and we've gone over that, you know, £50 million pounds or thereabouts but in terms of net spend on transfers um, as in fees, it hasn't been huge and yet despite that, they've got a got a top head coach in and they've, they've managed to win the league at, at a canter second time round under him 
unfortunately, when you get up to the Premier League, you're then having to try and mix with clubs with extraordinary budgets. I mean, budgets just miles beyond those of, of most of the clubs in the division. So it isn't easy to make inroads. And I think even somewhere like Wolves, they've had to have a very, very kind of unique, but also clever transfer strategy to start to, to muscle in. But I mean, this season, I, I I don't know how, if the crowds come back, I don't know how you would lay hands on a ticket. I don't know what your chances would be. I, I have no idea how they're going to decide who comes through the door if they get to the point where they're allowed crowds but not capacity and they can't accommodate every season ticket holder because that will become very, very complicated. But no, you're right. I mean, the the appeal is just there. And, and I think they're... They, Dan's talked a bit about, you know, the healing of the past month. And I think if, you know, if, joke a little about how it is on Twitter and the, the kind of tension on there, which always comes around every summer, it does feel as if, you know, 16 years of pure frustration have been washed away by this promotion. Harry sponsors the Phil Hayes Show, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary blokes who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. The Harry's Trial Set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. And as a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for $3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash philhay right now. harrys.com forward slash philhay. Oh, this was a close run thing, this one this week, Phil. Uh, You get to decide the contents of this part of the show. There's a poll. The part three poll can be found on Phil's Twitter in the early parts of the week. Three choices. You get to choose your favourite. This week's results, very, very close run thing. In third place with 29.6% of the vote, Viduka's goals. Just in front of that with 30.7% appointing Terry Venables. But the winner, and I'm delighted about this, with just shy of 40% of the vote, Tony Yeboah is the bit that we're going to be talking about this week. And it's a name that will always get Leeds fans of a certain vintage excited. So this might make you a little bit misty-eyed if you are old enough. If you're not old enough to remember Tony Yeboah, hopefully this will give you a glimpse into what he was like as a player. I think even if you're not at an age where you would have seen Yeboah in the flesh, I'll, I'll necessarily remember him. You, you would know his goals and, and you'd know them forensically to the point where you could reenact them in the back garden any day of the week. He's always been my favourite Leeds player and I say that as a as a non-Leeds fan and, and the reason is that I, I was 14 uh, when he scored that volley against Liverpool and I was living up near Edinburgh and it, because um, the Premiership as it was had, had navigated to Sky Sports and was suddenly getting you know, regular games broadcast was far more accessible. Most of us who were in the playground the following day had seen that goal. And if you hadn't watched it live, you'd seen it on the news. And it was just such a startling volley, startling finish, the sort of thing that you you just want to see over and over again, that before school and break time and, and everything else, we, we were spending time in the playground practising that over and over again, trying to, trying to repeat um, that volley, the same hit and from the same distance and, and everything else. And I think... He's one of these players who you get signings at a club who you know are going to be exceptional and, and you know all about them before they come in and, and the pedigree is so strong and they, they normally cost so much money that you expect great things of them. And when you do get, get great things from them, it's fantastic and you know the crowd warm to them and everything else and, and, and they start to they start to make a, a difference. But there's always something magic about what feels like untapped talent, or there's always something magic about the unknown. You know, this player who comes through the mist from Germany who you probably didn't know much about. I mean, even Howard Wilkinson didn't go to see him in the flesh. He talks about watching you bow on Eurosport and, and doing the deal on, on that basis. And it's hard not to it's not hard not to find attractive a player like that who just is has this mystique around him who you don't know a huge about a huge amount about, but somehow does these things that stick with you for ever and ever. And I think if in any poll of greatest Legion United goals of all time in a hundred years' time, I still think he'll win it. And I still think you'll be arguing over which goal should win it because they're both very different. They both involve different skills. They're both exceptional and, and sensational. And I was lucky enough to speak to him a few years back. I managed to get a number for him in, in Ghana um, and, I, and I called and we chatted everything over and I was asking him about the goals. And, and I said to him, it, it's not very difficult to see them on social media. If you're flicking through Twitter, you know your goals will pop up from time to time and and pretty regularly, and I said to him, you know, honestly, when was the when did you last watch the volley against Liverpool on YouTube or on somewhere else? And he said to me, if I'm being totally honest, 
I watched it last week. <laughs> I love that he just sits there watching those, particularly those two goals just on a loop, the Liverpool and the Wimbledon ones. But there were some beautiful ones. I mean, we're recording on the day of the anniversary of the West Ham goals, uh, where he absolutely thundered it in at Upton Park. And that preceded the Liverpool goal, didn't it? That came, um, what, a, a couple of games after that. So he wasn't bad, was he? The beauty of that one is is McCloskey's react. I think it's McCloskey in the net, and he has a slight look of what could I possibly have done with that? Like he, he's almost like a kid whose dad's blasted at him too hard, and he's like, "Well, obviously I'm not saving that, am I? That's the hardest shot anyone's ever hit in in the world." As well, it's hit with his left foot. You know, it's it's hit as well with his left foot as he hits that volley against Liverpool, and you you don't get too many players who are that naturally left-footed, but it, it starts to paint the picture of a striker who, who genuinely had it all. I mean, you kind of got, you, the argument always starts, doesn't it, with the Liverpool goal or the Wimbledon goal, and I always go for the Liverpool goal because it was the original, and for what it's worth, Yubo always says the Liverpool goal as well, but I think in a technical sense, there's probably an argument to say that the, the Wimbledon goal was even more difficult and, and you know even more special in, in some respects. But there's the, the curling finish against Monaco, there's that volley against West Ham. I mean, his goal scoring always leaves me wondering why it was that at no stage did he hit the very, very peak of football. You know, why did he not win the biggest trophies? Why did he not... You know, I mean this. I don't mean this in a disrespectful sense, but you know, Leeds were not in the Champions League at the point where where he was at, at Ellen Road. They they weren't really competing for the title at that point. That came later again, well, previously under Wilkinson, obviously, but later again under David O'Leary. And how is it that a player with that much raw ability and and that ability to finish didn't find himself to one of the biggest clubs in in Europe and and end up with some of the biggest medals in Europe? Because you feel like he should have done. I don't mind saying that Yubor is for me. Probably it was between him and Viduka for the best striker I've ever seen play for Leeds. I'm not old enough to have seen the the Revy team in its pomp, but in terms of my lifetime, I think Yabor is probably the best I've seen. He was just an, an incredible striker, so powerful and just such a natural finisher. I, I remember just being completely wowed by him through through teenage eyes when he signed for Leeds. With a lot of his goals as well, we remember the ones that he blasted in, but there's a lot of nice finishes in there as well, like little little dinks over goalkeepers. There's some headers in there. As, as Phil said, I mean, I think he actually is left-footed, isn't he? Despite his two most memorable goals being with his right. But you mean completely indistinguishable between one and the other. I think sometimes we, we forget what how good he was at doing the other striker stuff because he could hit a ball at like 100 miles an hour from the edge of the box. And as well, because he had so much pace and, and he was strong. And, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. There was a lot of discussion about this earlier in the season that black footballers tend to get pigeonholed into being seen as strong and powerful and, and quick and all that. But, I mean, his, his finishing was amazing. And, and like you say, you, you wouldn't talk about a stronger foot particularly because they both seem to be ridiculously good. And even though, I mean, I, I go along with that, Dan. I think in, when I think of finishes that I've seen over the years, certainly at Leeds, but, but at other clubs as well, it's, it's hard to think of many who looked more natural than him or, or looked more dangerous. And I also don't think that at this stage, you know, 15 years on, I can really think of anybody that I would compare to. You know, I, I can't think of anybody that you look at and say to yourself, he, that's like sort of Tony Yeboah, Mark II. He just seemed to have this unique aura about him and, and unique style, um, which is, has never kind of been replicated. We have to put it in a bit of context, actually. I think that... The idea of foreign signings was, it was handled in quite a, a, a twee manner at, at the time, like the mid 90s, you know, in a way that maybe society wouldn't necessarily tolerate in 2020. Because, you know, the, the whole idea that there's an African man who likes Yorkshire puddings and the stereotype that his date of birth, the 6th of the 6th, 66, was a fabrication. But it certainly helped to build up the myth around Yeboah and the fact that he just came from this impossibly exotic place and, and Germany, which we didn't see on the telly at that time. And there's no internet, you forget that. No, well, as I was saying with Wilkinson, you know, it was long before the days of Scout or even any kind of serious video analysis that was easy to access. So as he tells the story, you know, his, his knowledge and his understanding of Yeboah came from Eurosport and, and foreign broadcasts where he was able to watch the, the Bundesliga. But I mean, Yeboah's record in the Bundesliga was absolutely outstanding. He was top scorer twice in 93 and 94. And, and I think 
significantly as well. He, he started at Saarbrücken, but had gone on to, to Eintracht Frankfurt, where they'd very nearly won the Bundesliga in 1992. They'd finished they'd finished third, but only two points um, off first place. And, you know, this is a club that had only ever won the Bundesliga once before in, in 1959. But there were problems for him over there. You know, he, he was the club's first African captain, but he, he suffered from a lot of racial abuse, you know, back at, in a time when... I, I remember reading Jurgen Klopp speaking about this and saying... It was far harder to publicise back then. It was far harder to make an issue of. So this would go on, but it wouldn't really gain any traction because you didn't have social media. And you know, you could condemn it, but it was far harder to condemn in a wide manner in in the way that you can now. And he he became a cult hero at at Frankfurt in the end. And there is um, there's a mural over there near the station, Yeboah's house, they call it. And there's a huge um, a huge slogan on it with his kind of face in the background, and it says, you know, in German, "Wir schämen uns für alle." Um, die Gegen und Schreien, which in English um, translates as we feel ashamed of all who screamed against us. And that comes from a, a letter, an open letter that Yeboah helped to write back in the, the early 90s. And it was a, an anti-racism slogan, basically. It was a it was a case of trying to highlight the problems that, that black um, and, and minority players were facing in Germany and, and the fact that nothing seemed to, to be getting done about it. And and I think it kind of underlines his quality more that in, in that environment and in those circumstances, and OK, you know, he, as I say, he did become a cult hero at Frankfurt. But to begin with, it, it was very tough for him and it, it was... It was very, very hard, but he could score goals like like the best of them. And and I'll say this, it's absolutely no mean feat to be top scorer in the Bundesliga two seasons running. What a striker he was. I mean, what do you remember of him, Michael? I mean, I was young at the time. I was I was ten years old when we signed him. And so it was like but for a ten year old, in many ways, the ideal footballer. Like just having someone because it, it's strange almost to think now that we didn't see any Bundesliga games and you didn't actually see all that much football but you did see Yeboah's goals over and over again. And that was the beauty of it, I think, was that you you always knew he'd be there in goal of the month and you'd get to see him over and over again and they'd be shown on Football Focus and you could, as Phil would say, you'd try and do him at the park as much as you could. Foiled by square goalposts at my local park, you could never quite recreate that. But it was just brilliant. Like the, the excitement of having him in the team, I think, was in a way that I think, I can't remember it really having it since of having that star player as much as now like Pablo Hernandez is the a player you'd want to go and see having it all about going to see Yeboah going to watch Leeds I, I just think that's not something that I've felt since it was a proper I was there moment wasn't it against Liverpool and you can tell that because we all still go on about it now and like you say Dan that was 1995 now 2020 and and you can remember everything about it you can remember the players involved how the ball got to him who was in goal for Liverpool who was round about him and and you know his reaction the, the reaction of the crowd and likewise you know the goal down at Wimbledon it just is so clear in your head because they were properly properly sensational goals which you know I, I wonder whether there's there are many, if any, seasons where one or other of those would not have won goal of the season. There can't have been many better in the Premier League and certainly not any that I've seen. He was just a wonderful striker that I, I enjoyed seeing every game that he played, but he always felt like he played too few games for Leeds and he went far too soon, particularly when you think of how things kind of went off a cliff for him under George Graham. Just uh, just wasn't the right manager for him. No, and you know his feeling, Yeboah's, was that you know, from the outset, Graham didn't like him, that... that his face didn't fit and, and that he he was never going to be a long-term part of the team. I mean, it's so long ago and obviously I wasn't around at the time. I, I couldn't say whether or not from Graham's point of view there were things about Yeboah that caused friction or whether it was just a, a clash of, of personalities um, between them. But I know the one thing that Yeboah regretted deeply was throwing his shirt away um, towards the dugout and at Graham and when he was substituted in his, his last game away at Spurs it was 20 minutes to go Leeds lost that game 1-0 Ian Hart came on for him and it was just total frustration he hadn't played much that season and he and he launched it in Graham's direction and, and he said that you know when he got back to Leeds he actually the people who lived round about him in the city were very supportive of him. The people he met in the street, you know, the people come round to his house saying they understood his annoyance and, you know, they were very much on his side. But I think he still looks back at it and feels that that image of the shirt flying through the air as he disappears down the tunnel, clearly furious, is not how it should have been and, and not how it should have been left. And, I, th- I, you know, I don't think that's what sticks in your head when you think of you, boy. It's the goals, isn't it, that, that stay with you. But... um kind of feeds a little bit into what we were saying about Ben White and transfer requests and, and everything else. When when you do go from a club and when, when you leave, you, you kind of want it to be done in the right way and, and done in a way that doesn't leave any bad blood. And I think even though it didn't sour his reputation at all, even though people you know never really get at him for that, I think he wishes that he hadn't done it. 
think there's a degree of sympathy as well because we all saw the football that George Graham was serving up and having to sit and watch Ian Rush try and score goals for us when Yeboah could have done the job was was a little bit heartbreaking. God, yeah, Ian Rush chugging up and down the wing. That was a difficult watch, a very, very difficult watch. But you're absolutely right, Phil. I think I remember that shirt being thrown and we, we spoke further up in the podcast about Ben White's transfer request and that being like the hand grenade option. And that's what the throwing the shirt was. When you threw the shirt like that, I think that always spells the end of a player's time at a club when you do that. Yeah, and then, you know, pre-season came around and your boy wouldn't come back and it was clear that that was never, ever going to be healed at that rift. And and I think regardless of how what the relationship was like between Yeboah and Graham, I think once it got to that point, Leeds equally started to lose patience and, and he went back to Germany and, and went to, to Hamburg where he played a lot of games and scored goals and, and everything else. But it, it's still, you know, I still find it hard to get my head around the fact that somebody with that amount of talent, goal-scoring talent, wasn't coveted by everybody across Europe. You know, perhaps there were reasons for it, I, I don't know, but he just seems... To look at him, he just seems like a player that everybody would have wanted. And if you had the money to sign, and I think when he went to Hamburg, he was not in any way expensive. I think you're talking million, two million tops. There wasn't somebody else out there that thought we'll definitely have a go at this guy. When you look at Yeboah's legacy, though, and we'll circle back round to the talk about the away kit, the green and the blue. When I see that kit, I instantly think of Tony Yeboah. Yeah, I think the image of his shorts riding up in his enormous thighs, bounding around the picture. That, and I think him... Um... Stood with a mountain bike, having one man of the match against Birmingham City in the League Cup semi-final. They're my two enduring images of him. Lovely stuff. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Phil. Try out The Athletic for free right now. You can get the Argentina TV article, the impact that Bielsa has had on people watching Leeds United, the other side of the Atlantic. All Phil's brilliant stories are on there as well about Leeds. Clubs across the Premier League, football across the world, sport across the globe. All can be found at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. There you will get a 30-day free trial. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch up with you next time. See you later. The Phil Hay Show.